So this is our new series. We're calling it Sacred Secular. Um, it starts today. It's lasting for four weeks. We are going to try to address what I think is a huge problem in the church in, at large, uh, sometimes in our lives, many times in our lives. And um, I'm going to start today uh, just talking, giving you a little bit of church history. I promise it won't be long and painful, but I, I want to give you just a picture of what has happened, why we are where we are, what needs to change within the church. Um, you guys know, many of you know this, the Bible is divided into two sections, the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Old Testament is everything before Jesus came to earth. The New Testament starts with the life of Jesus and goes on into infinity. The, uh, as you start the New Testament, there are four books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are called the Gospels. Gospel means good news, and the Gospels are all about Jesus Christ. Uh, they were written by four men named Matthew. You guys are so fast. Um, this is going to work. The, it was, it's incredible. Matthew, Mark, and Luke um, are, those books are actually, I'll give you something you don't even care about. They're called synoptic Gospels because they, they look a lot of like, the book of John is much different, um, but it's still all about the same story. You go right from the 33-some the years that Jesus is on earth in the four Gospels, and you move instantly into the book of Acts, which is the beginning of the church and everything that the church is supposed to do and it was supposed to become. We're going to talk about Luke for a moment. Luke uh, wrote the book of Luke, and in the book of Luke, he talks about Jesus. And, and he has this interesting way of writing. Uh, if you read the last chapter, the last few verses of the book of Luke, it's like he just stops. And, he, and it's almost, I mean, he wasn't writing, you know, to, to do a New York Times bestseller. He just, he was done talking. He just stopped. And then if you go look at Acts, the same exact thing happens. And, and, but in reality, Everything that he writes previously takes you to the next thing that he writes about, and then that goes all into the books that Paul and others wrote uh, for the process of the church growth and everything that God wanted to do in the future. Um, in the last uh, chapter of Luke, actually it's the last sentence of the book of Luke, uh, this is after... Jesus was crucified. It was after the resurrection uh, of Jesus. It was um, after the ascension into heaven. Um, he makes this comment. This is his last sentence in the book of Luke. Actually, it's half a sentence. It says, and they, he's talking about the, this new thing called ecclesia. We turned it into a word called church. And they spent all their time in the temple praising God. They, the church, spent all their time in the temple praising God. Now, that sounds spiritual. That sounds really good. They spent all their time in the temple praising God. And then Luke just stops writing. Then 
we pick him up again in the book of Acts, and he starts writing again, picking up just a little bit, one chapter of where Jesus is on earth, and then Jesus is taken up into heaven, and then the disciples are all looking at Jesus like, oh, crud, that's not what I was thinking, kind of look. And it says that these two white-robed men, we can, they were either angels or they were two dudes with white robes. <laughs> I'm thinking angels. But they look at these disciples and here's what they said. What are you doing looking up to heaven? In other words, what in the world are you doing? So we find the church they spent all their time in the temple praising God, and then now they're looking in the sky and wondering what to do. So chapter two of Acts, you see this incredible outpouring of God's spirit on this new ecclesia. Um, it's just incredible. Thousands upon thousands of people in a very short amount of time became followers of Jesus Christ. They weren't really called Christians at that time. That came later. Uh, they were just, we're in this. We're, we're, we're all about it. And, and at one time, there were 3,000 people, and then another 5,000 people, and then thousands upon thousands. And, and it got so big, so quickly, that um, the, the religious leaders and the Roman leaders both became afraid. What's going on? What is this movement? It wasn't, you know, try to find the king. They couldn't, there was no king. They couldn't, they couldn't put their finger on it. But this is scary. It's like our empires are getting ready to come to an end. The, the, the poor Jewish leaders, their temple was overrun with these new Christ followers praising God all the time, right? And so, hey, give us our temple back. They, they didn't even ask. They just went. And, 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 and then the, the, the Romans are like, okay, they're running around saying Jesus is Lord. That's not the right thing. We taught them to say Caesar is Lord. And so they're all, you know, messed up. And so the Bible teaches in church history begins to teach us that there was a terrible persecution of the Christians. And that just spread them all over the place. It's called the diaspora. It was, it's the, uh, it was the, the explosive sending out, explosive growth of the church. And all it did was throw the message of Jesus all over the place. In fact, one of the places that many Christians ran, or Christ followers ran to get away from the persecution in Jerusalem, of all places, was Rome. Maybe we could hide in Rome. But then the Spirit felled them, and they started, you know, taking over Rome. And so there was great persecution there. And, and so the idea was that the more they're persecuted, the more trouble there is, the more, you know, you get sent out, the more the message of Christ infects everybody around. I got a little tiny glimpse of this when I was a chaplain to the Redskins, and, and I just hated this part. It's kind of like the thing with Hannah today and, and, and Megan. It, it's like you get them right where you want them, with in, in, like in football. You know, I got them in the chapels. I got them in the Bible studies. They're really growing. And then they get traded to some pagan football team. 
At that time, there were, you know, all of them were pagan except for one. And they get dispersed. And I was upset until I realized, oh, that's our missionary program, right? This is, they're getting paid to go to foreign teams. Um, the, probably the most dramatic moment was um, we were at a Super Bowl in San Diego, and I was having this Bible study with the Redskins, and there were probably 10, 12 guys in this little hotel room, and uh, they were actually big rooms, but with 10 and 12 football players in there, they became small and smelly. And so, you know, we're, we finished the Bible study, and I just had everybody go around the room to pray, and um, Reggie White, was visiting, one of the guys invited him to come to our, our prayer meeting. Reggie was playing for Philadelphia at the time, and, and um, he was supposed to pray. He was in a certain, and he's just sitting there crying, like crying, like out loud, you know, baby crying, and baby giant crying. And, and uh, Charles Mann, I think it was Charles, said, Reggie, what's wrong? And he goes, I just want to play on your team. You know, a, so, so, you know, then everybody's like, oh, yeah, we would like that too. You know, let's just pray you in. It didn't work. You know, God sent him to another team in need. And uh, that was the Green Bay Packers. If I had been God, I would have sent him to Dallas. If I, you know, if you want to look at a team in need and team needs Jesus, I would have gone, go to Dallas. But he sent him to Green Bay. Long story short, when Reggie left football, he planted a church. He became a pastor until his uh, untimely death. He died of a heart attack, mostly because of all the stuff that had happened to his body and years and years of football playing. But it was, it was under duress that that expansion happened. Well, you take that to 100,000 times higher. That was what happened in the diaspora of the church. The persecution and everything just drove the, you know, drove Christianity to major proportions. Now, in the third century, that whole thing took a turn for the worse in that um, Constantine, the, the then emperor of Rome, said, hey, the, this is really becoming popular. So if we can't defeat it, let's join their team. In fact, we'll make them our team. And we're going to declare Rome as the, the, uh, we're, we're going to declare Christianity as the religion of Rome. And that was the worst thing that could have happened. Now, again, if I'd been in charge, I would have thought, that would be smart. That would be wonderful. Wouldn't we all? We all could go into temple praising Jesus because, you know, now we've been, we've been persecuted. Now we get to be the church of Rome. And it basically put the church in a mess a real mess. By the 11th century, that church became the Holy Roman Empire. And it just grew and grew in terms of organization until it took over Western Europe and then it's made its way to America. And from that point on, the church has been pretty much relegated to uh, a very difficult situation. Um, you know, we talk about America becoming a post-Christian nation. We're kind of late to that realization. 250 years ago, historians began to declare that we were in a post-Christian world because now 
the church turned inward. It was all about its things that made it who it is today, and the rest of the world put it in a box all by itself. And um, so today's culture is pretty much done with Christianity. Now, the only people not over it are Christians. Uh, It seems that Constantine still has uh, the ability to be the emperor of the church's imagination. So I've I've been thinking about this. I was thinking, you know, if if I were the devil... And, and don't go anywhere with that. But if I were, I would probably do exactly what he did. If I had to stop the church, I think my first thought would be, let's kill him. And then I would realize, whoa, that, that's not working. That's actually the opposite. It's like, well, it just it didn't work. It was bad because now it's spreading. And so then I think, well, let's, let's lock her up. You know, I can hear the demons, so lock her up. Like, you know, we've heard a lot of that lately, but that's what's happened. We've locked her up in an organization. And there are parts of church today that personally I don't like very much. I love the church, the Bride of Christ, but the church as an organization is weak. It's ineffective. It's exclusive. It doesn't look much like Jesus. And I have to add quickly that I'm not pointing fingers because I think I've been part of the problem. I think that my buy-in to church and and what it could be has become problematic. So I want to ask you just a, you know, for those of you who have been Christ followers in the church for a long time, I want to ask you a couple of important questions here. Um, When it comes to church today, If you were to look at a church, um, what would you think would make that church successful? What's success in a church? I think we would all most likely think about weekends, right? We would think about Sundays primarily. We would think about church growth. We would think about big. The bigger it is, the more we can offer, the greater the ministries we can do. We would think about big turnouts on the weekends. We would think about perhaps big buildings or, or beautiful facilities. Um, we would think about great worship music, you know, great band, all these things that, that we think about with church. Um, great speakers, not, not here necessarily, just, you know, in other churches. Um, when pastors get together at conferences, no matter what the teaching is, almost every thought of every pastor during those conferences are two things. They think about two things, butts and bucks. How many butts do you have in the seats on a weekend? How much money do you bring in? It's unfortunate, but that's where this culture has taken us. We, we look at churches and think, whoa, that's amazing. They're successful. They're de-. And I've, I've told you the stats. I don't need to go into this too deep, but as a nation, no matter how big our churches get, how great they are, how much this, that, or the other they have, 
we're basically ineffective in our culture. So I want to talk about culture because we live in this world where we think great churches are awesome, and I will tell you that basically the culture in our country doesn't give a rip about our churches. They don't care about our our buildings, they don't care about how good the music is, they don't care how big we are unless we're messing up parking in their, in their housing development. They don't care about any, they don't even think about us. So I want, I want to set this up a little bit. You know, um, I talked about seven mountains of culture, uh, I don't know, a year or so ago. Uh, here are six of them. Uh, you've got business, family, these are mountains, by the way, I'm drawing over here, um, education, we've got government, um, we have one, two, three, four, uh, oh, arts and entertainment, and we have, that's not, that's an A, it's, that's a jaggedy mountain, um, media, you know, these are, these are like, this is where everybody lives. Right? This is, this is what we do. We're in business. We have families. We're in education. You put medicine in there. Uh, government, arts and entertainment, media. These are the driving forces in culture in our world. So here's the, we'll call this the world. This is where everybody lives. LD, there we go. Um, and then there's God over here. And as we know, God is so holy, so righteous, there is no way for him to connect with sin, with problems, those kinds of things. There's no way for the world to connect with God. And so God sent his son who died as a sacrifice and created the church to be the bridge between the two. And this is how it's been looking. So we have God here, the church here, and the world. Well, what happened? We struggle because we want spiritual things in our lives. And so there's this gravitational pull for us to spend so much time over here, yet... We live over here, and there's this gravitational pull on our lives over here. And so what did we do? We created another mountain. It's the mountain of religion. And it's our, you know, there shouldn't be seven mountains. There should be six mountains. There should, this shouldn't be a mountain. It's, it's turned into a fort. It's turned, we're supposed to be in everything. There's a term that I, it's in your notes, and I want you to think through this. It's a term called uh, dualism. And, and what's happened here is, this is us. There are two of us. Dualism is this. The division of something conceptually into two opposed or contrasted aspects or the state of being so divided. A split vision worldview such as holy and profane or sacred and secular. In other words, 
The church has done this. We have done this as Christ followers. We, there are two of us. And culture struggles with this. They call it hypocrisy. We, it's the opposite of integrity. Our worlds never really seem to meet, but they feel like they're pulling us in opposite directions. The church, in my opinion, the church in America is dualistic. We, we don't present the picture that Jesus gave for us. Something, something, something drastic has to happen to change this. This is, this is a dualism that defeats the work that Jesus wanted to do. When, when, the, when, the, when the Jewish Christians and then the Gentiles that joined them fled all over the world, there wasn't two of them. There was one of them, and they invaded every culture, every, every possible place that they could. And I'm going to talk about how. We haven't done that. We as a church, as an organization, we've got these things that are sacred to us, and then we have the, the secular world. And some of you struggle every week with this because you come here on the weekends, and it's like relief, and then, you know, and you're with the people. Oh, this is so comfortable. This feels so good. We're, you know, we're in the temple every day praising on Sundays, and then we go out on Mondays, and we're going back to this place that we wish we didn't have to go. If I could just get a job on the church staff, It'd be so much better. I've heard that. You haven't been on our staff or you wouldn't dare think that. But I'm just saying that if I could just be in full-time ministry, you know, where did we come up with? You know, we, we think buildings are sacred. We, you know, you can take this down a long way. There's a movie I loved. It came out, I don't know, 2000, something like that, called Chicken Run. Anybody... <laughs> Anybody remember Chicken Run? It's like a, the funniest, coolest movie. Um, these chickens were stuck in a coop, and they were—they um, felt like prisoners of war uh, in a in a chicken coop. And um, the, the the deal was they had to lay eggs, and a lot of them. And every chicken, every hen had a quota, and if they missed the quota, they ended up being um, eliminated. In other words, they turned into a roaster on somebody's table. And so one of the hens, remember Ginger? She was the, the hen that was going to set the people free, the chickens free. And, and she talked about freedom and, and look, we're going to get free. And nobody even knew what that meant. And so they made the chicken flying machine. Yeah, and, and, and that was a mess. Um, but... The, the, the one, there was one hen, I can't remember her name, I, I was going to look it up and I totally forgot to, but I remember what she kept saying. This is a chicken's lot to lay eggs and then die. That's our, only, that's our job. We need to lay eggs and then we die. What a, they, they had no concept of what it meant to be free. Well, I think maybe the church could find itself in that same kind of situation. No concept of our real purpose. It's so difficult, think about this, it's so difficult to see past 1,700 years of religion in order to carry out the mission we've been given, this purpose that God has placed upon the church. So I wanna to talk today about what this looks like. What, when church is working, what does it 
look like? In your notes, write this down. I'll explain it in a moment. The missional church is incarnational. Incarnational. We're going to be talking about this over the next several weeks, and you're going to hear this term often. In fact, uh, I believe we probably could do a whole series on this if we can get the time to put this together. It's incarnational. Here's a passage of scripture in Philippians that talks about what this looks like. It says, Paul says, though he, he's talking about Jesus, though Jesus was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. So incarnation, being incarnated, means it's God in human form. It's God within. God's in something. We, um, it, we can't create sacred spaces where people come to encounter the benefits of Jesus. We have to do what Jesus did. We have to be incarnate. We have to take Jesus to the people. So there are four components of this incarnation. I'm sorry, I don't have this in your notes, and I'm going to go through it rather quickly. Uh, If you want this, just email me, greg at destinychurch.info. I'll send you all of this because um, this is rather important. I, I just missed putting it in your notes. The first component of being incarnate is identification. Identification. We are to interact with the human race just as Jesus showed us Love, we are to show love to every person around us. Incarnate, the the badge, the ID badge of being an incarnate Christ follower means we love people. The badge is love. When you look at Jesus, his identification was something that the church, the religious world, did not even think about. It was loving people. Here's the second thing. It requires another component of incarnation is local engagement. What's my place? Where am I supposed to be? It's a geography. When a couple, I guess it was a year ago, our whole family was, had this amazing privilege to go to Israel, and, and we spent some time in Nazareth. I was amazed at what a terribly poverty-stricken place Nazareth is. It's... And it's been like that for all of its history. It was one of the poorest places that you could find in, in the land. Um, when Jesus was there, that was his home. And even then, it was a very poor village. He had a place where all of his identity was found. He had, he had Mary and Joseph, his parents, who lived there. He had friends there. He grew up there. He, he, his, he, these things formed who he was. He had this this MO that was built on a local engagement. So what we gather from that is that our neighborhood is important. Your neighborhood is important, your community, your associations. People will get to experience Jesus on the inside of their culture, not adopting a second culture such as a church experience. Let me just ask another question right here and answer this yourself. Just Just answer this yourself. Do I love my church more than I love my community? Do I love this more than I love my neighborhood? 
or my town or the people that I associate with. If, if we look at Jesus, he would tell us you need to have a deep love for both. It's not an either or thing. It's, it should be intense for both. Local engagement. Third thing, God in the middle. It's not so much that Jesus is like God. You know, we, we, you know it's not that he was like God. It, it was more of this. God is like Jesus. I've taught on this before. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. And now we are supposed to be that picture. We are supposed to be the picture of Jesus, who is the picture of God in our community. He told his disciples, you want to see God, look at me. And then he told all of us to go and do what you have seen me do. When we act like Jesus with others, people will fall in love with Jesus. We, you know, if we go out as, as uh, we have targets, evangelistic targets or whatever, and, and we don't act like Jesus, we miss the opportunity to love people and care for them and get to know them and understand. And I've talked all about this, so you can go find stuff in the past. You'll hear, hear that I talked about this, but it's a big, big deal. Finally, God everywhere. The force and mission of God is centrifugal. Remember, uh, remember we learned that in, in science class, the centri centrifugal force? It pushes out. It doesn't push in. It pushes everything out. He's, he got, God is ascending God. For God so loved that he sent. If we do what Jesus did, we won't work to build a club. We won't work to build a, a big butts and bucks situation. We're going to work to build the kingdom of God where it's most needed, which is outside of these walls. There's a barrier that's between us and culture, and we've got to blow that apart. We need to disassemble ourselves and seep into every crack and crevice of society in order to be Jesus to people in need. We need, we need a new diaspora. We don't need nude anything. We need a new Diaspera. That was a tongue twister. Okay. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. We've talked about this so much in the past. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. That's incarnation. That's our job. The missional church, number two, is messianic, which means it's not dualistic. We adopt the worldview and practices of Jesus the Messiah rather than that of the Greco-Roman Empire. Instead of seeing the world divided between the sacred and secular, we see it the way Jesus saw it. The world is God's. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and everything in it. It's his. And he wants us in it to create goodness and love, struggling to do everything we can to look like Jesus. Speaking of struggling, think about this. Who, who was Jesus always in trouble with? Who was he always struggling with? When you read the New Testament, it wasn't culture. In fact, he, he got in a lot of trouble hanging out with the culture, hanging out with people who were messed up, people who were lost, people who had done 
things that were so despicable to Jewish law. He had his real problem with religious people. And you would think it would have been just the opposite. I have a friend um, <laughs> that we, we spend quite a bit of time together. I talk to him at least once a week. And he's been away from church for 25 or 30 years. He'll tell you he hates church. But he says this about me. He goes, for a pastor, you're not very religious. And, and then he quickly adds, but you're really spiritual. I don't even think he knows what that is. But I look at it as a compliment. Because I think this. I think culture, people around us, the people you work with, they don't have a real problem with God. They, they don't have a problem with Jesus. Jesus is historic. You know, he's for real. And he was a wonderful person in the lives of most of culture. They have a problem with the church. They have a problem with this dualistic club thing that they got left out of. I, I, that's, that just feels awful. So I want to show you a different picture here. What I'm erasing was not God's plan at all, ever. And I am hoping that we can change what's broken. We only have to answer for ourselves. You know, in the beginning, there was God. And, and God created the world. And God so loved the world loved his creation, loved the people, that he needed to bring them to himself. And so he sent Jesus. And Jesus started a movement with all the components that I just talked about, the identi identification of love, the, the idea that that he could bring the Father God into the lives of others and, and build something that would build a, a nation and multiple nations and change the world. And so Jesus created his bride, who is the church. And the whole idea of being one, the whole idea of, of not being dualistic was that it would all work together. I, I look at this and I, I kind of think, okay, if you, if you take this apart, and I've seen all of these things in action, if, if it's just God in the world, that's this, this little area right here. Ephesians says that God is in everything. He is everywhere. He has already, and, and I, I believe Brody's going to teach on this. If, if not, Brody, teach on this uh, soon. But he has already 
created things in the heart of man, in the heart of our, our, the people of our nation. He has already started working in their lives. He is everywhere in the world, and he has prepared people to be loved and to be brought to Jesus. He has done this. We don't have to wonder, are people going to be receptive? They will respond to love. They will respond if we're the right church. But we need more than this, don't we? Well, we come over here and we just go with the church and the world. That's where a lot of our problems are. And here we develop religion. That's never worked, never will, never has, never will. Over here, if it's just God and the church, we are in the temple praising, looking up in the sky. And while it's wonderful to have communion with Jesus, and I was going to say grow, but you can't grow if you're not one person doing what you're supposed to be doing. It's just church, the church that we don't like. But right here, this is sacred. It's where God works. It's where God lives. He doesn't live in this. He doesn't live in that. They're all part of what he does. But this is where things change. This is where the world is affected. It's when we begin to understand that there should be one of us and we should be very much in the middle of everything. We don't need a fort. We don't need to be another mountain. We, we need to be in the places that God has brought us to in them with love. So I wrote some scriptures. I'm not going to read them now um, because Josue's been playing the piano for a long time. But I, I want to ask you one more question. What does all this mean personally to you? What does it mean? And I've come up with, with a couple things. I think it should change the way that you think about church. Um, some of you aren't real excited about church these days. You've written it off. You've said, man, I, I'm, you know, I'll go, but I don't like it. Some, some of you are here under duress or obligation or guilt or whatever. And... I think if you really begin to understand the things that I've taught today, you're going to have a different picture of church. One of the reasons that we get so tired of church is because it doesn't, it doesn't take us to the purpose that we've been created for. And, and so we have to change in order for us to experience the fact that in Ephesians 2.10, it says that we are masterpiece missions. We have to change how we live if we're going to see these missions that God created be fulfilled. And as long as we're just sitting here praising God in the temple and looking in the sky, it will never happen. And don't think I said things that I didn't say. I believe in worship. I believe in prayer, 
being together. But I don't believe we do all of that to just look into the sky. We're here on mission. Some of you love the way church is working. I would challenge you not to be one of those people because while we're having such a great time, 96% of the people in our nation are basically not Christ followers. How could we think this is so great? And I don't mean any disrespect to the church, the bride of Christ. I'm talking about the organization we've created. So it should change the way you think about church. The other thing is it should change the way you think about God. God gave us this incredible picture of himself in Jesus. He has been and will be in all that you do and all that you face. And God went to the mat on your behalf by coming to earth in the form of his son to show you that he is where you are. So take the darkest moment of your life ever. Some of you, you think of it just like that. Some of you may be in that right now. There will be dark times in your future. In the darkest of times, Jesus is already there. He's already there. This isn't about religion. This isn't about anything else. He is where you are. You and I are here. And we're here. And because of Jesus, we're here. There's one of us. And we will never walk a day without him. We will never live a day, no matter how despairing life is, without him. We'll never have a moment where we we will be separated from him. And don't think Christ followers don't have problems. You'd have a hard time saying something like that to the New Testament church, the first two, three hundred years of the church. It wasn't until we formed clubs that we created weird doctrines like that. But Jesus will be with you and is with you wherever you are. And there's only one of us. Let me pray. Father, I just thank you so much for your word. I thank you for, Lord, I thank you for the church. Not the organization that we've made it, but the bride that you created. I thank you for the incredible power that you pour into us. I thank you for the love that you showed us and that we can then display as our own badge of the component of being a missional person. Lord, I thank you for the fact that you dwell in us and and, and you are God in us. And wherever we go, we take you with us. And, And Lord, we don't have to be worried about culture. We need to love the world the way you love the world and be Jesus in the world. So Father, our goal is not to simply bring people to an organization, but to bring them to you. Help us, God, open our eyes. Lord, you never designed us to be two people. We're one. 
Jesus' name. Amen.